thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Back Chat, exploring the five pillars of health, thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also your neurology with Dr. Paul Bogamo and Dr. Kim Fenton. Welcome to Back Chat. My name is Paul Bergamo, and it's great to be here in our next podcast. Back Chat's about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also your neurology. Today's Back Chat will cover the pillar of thinking. To help me as always, it's a great pleasure to introduce my fellow co-host, Kim Fenton. Hey, Kim, how are you going? Good, Paul. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Now, look, in light of our topic tonight, you shared with me a really interesting uh, reflection of, of no. Can you share that with our Back Chat audience group? No, I was just thinking about all of the people that I know who, when we were younger, came out as gay and the challenges that they had to face then 20 or 30 years ago, they are different now. So it used to be very a lot of bigotry around, and I think that's still the case. There is still a lot of bigotry around, but there seems to be a lot more acceptance these days than there was in the past. So it just really made me think, this subject really made me think about how things have changed and how far we've come. And although we're only partway through the journey and we have a long way to go, it's good to see some improvements in people's attitudes towards acceptance. It's interesting because this theme is on the pillar of thinking and mental health is a very big component to back chat. We've had good chats with uh, Wayne Swass, our, our recent podcast. We talked about adolescent uh, social media and challenges with mental health there. And really, I suppose that was over general discussions of, of, of people who suffer from depression. Tonight, we're going to go a little bit deeper, aren't we, Kim, in the sense of looking at a, at a sociocultural group, gay and lesbian group, and some of the challenges they experience. And in a similar theme, though, talk about, have conversations about it so that we don't vilify, we don't harass, we don't bully gay and lesbian people. So... Without further ado, let me introduce Matt Hall. So Matt holds a Masters of Business, Sports Management and Bachelor of Arts qualification. He's a Beyond Blue ambassador and part of the Public Speakers Bureau. He volunteers as a lifeline uh, crisis counsellor and sits on the board of manager for Queensland's Positive People. Currently, Matt is a company director for an event management organisation. Hey, Matt, how are you going? Good, thanks, mate. Yourself? Good, thank you. Now, you're coming from sunny Queensland, is that right? I do live on the Gold Coast now, mate, and loving it. It is 24 degrees and sunny at the moment up here. Right. I mean, uh, Kim, how did we go today? Yeah, I think it, it was about 14, Paul, wasn't it? I think it, what, we woke up with 14. It stayed 14 in the morning and I think it was in the afternoon 14 and I think it's still 14 or probably now starting to go down. So, no, we didn't, didn't get close to sort of peaking towards those 20s. So, Matt, look, uh, give us some background, Matt. Uh, you know, there's some stuff that's happened in your life, especially in the late 90s, that were, were life-changing events. Can you share with our Backchat listeners what happened then? Well, in 1998, I was suddenly and unexpectedly put into the national spotlight in Australia. Uh, it was released that there was a HIV-positive Australian rules footballer who'd been banned from playing football and that was me so at the time the uh, media went into quite a frenzy and it, and it was quite an interesting 
topic, really, because when you think about it in Australia, sport is just so culturally relevant and, and it drives change in so many areas of our life. So, you know, to most people, HIV in 1998 was still a death sentence. So I, I had taken it to the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal uh, for a hearing and it I had the ban overturned and it set a worldwide legal precedent for HIV-positive athletes. But if I can just go back to explain what led up to that was um, I was diagnosed a few years before that at a time when HIV was still a, a death sentence. So as a 23-year-old young man identified as heterosexual, uh, I, I you know, was put in a tough situation where I had to attend Fairfield Hospital, which, if you know in Melbourne, used to be Fairfield Prison before it became the Infectious Disease Unit. And when you're a young man uh, going to a medical appointment and, and you're walking past people that were, that were dying, it was it was confronting, it was scary, it was emotional, but they were the times we lived in. I was very, very fortunate that in 1997, a new class of HIV medication became available called antiretrovirals. And antiretrovirals had a, they, they changed the entire landscape in Australia and worldwide for those people that were living with HIV. Basically, within three months of taking this medication, uh, I became what's known as undetectable. So you're not cured of HIV as such. It still lies dormant in, in the lymph flow, in the lymph glands, but you, uh, are called, referred to as undetectable because the virus is such a low level that it doesn't actually show up. Uh, it doesn't actually show you, you, you have a normal life expectancy and you're untransmittable or uninfectious. So this was an amazing time to be alive, actually, because when you've been told the year before that you've probably had five years to live and then, uh, and then you get this uh, normal life expectancy and that all of a sudden you're uninfectious to others, uh, you go back to living a normal life. So I was encouraged by my doctor to, to play football. And when I went back to, to play football, I explained it to my teammates at the football club. And look, a few of them were uncomfortable. So my doctor came down and spoke to them and assured them that I was 100% safe. I was absolutely no risk to the health and safety of myself or any other individual. So uh, I registered to play football. Unfortunately, the Football Association still saw it as a death sentence, so we had to have a, a legal case. Uh, and we had agreed to keep it confidential, confidential but it, it was released to the public and the, and the media went into a frenzy. So I went on the AFL football show with no media experience and sat there with my doctor and took all the questions that were thrown at me from the panel by you know current AFL players who might have been concerned and, and even people from the audience, you know, parents who were concerned about their own children sort of were asking questions. And it was really educational and it was quite powerful. And when I went to court, at the end of the day, the court wouldn't allow me to play football if I was any risk to the health and safety of any other individual. A court of law just won't allow that. And, and they were they were 100% solid that I was absolutely no risk. It's amazing. So, it? Sorry, you could go, Matt. Yeah. Yep. Oh, I was just going to say it was a it was a hell of an experience from from a, a you know a young fellow who grew up in a working class suburb of Melbourne and was fortunate enough to to go to a uh, fantastic uh, private high school. I I you know was in this situation where I'd never uh, been involved with any media or public health or or any sort of activism, and all of a sudden I was thrown uh, not under the bus, but it was put to me by a, a man I respected, doctor, and, and when I 
was told I couldn't play football by the association, I nearly walked away and he just said to me, mate, you have an obligation to, to society and to others to stand up to this one because the decision's wrong. Uh, and, and I know that sparked something in me that even to this day I still uh, try to be active with numerous campaigns relating to stigma and discrimination. I can only imagine, you know, if I think to myself when I'm in my mid or early 20s, you know, we're just trying to work out how life worked in the, a very basic level, let alone having a situation where you've got the, world, the, the, the nation's attention upon you, media upon you, you've got court, it, court cases that are very compelling. Can you recall back then even how you, how you mentally sort of navigated through that? I mean, that would have been a really tough time. It was a very tough time. It was a confronting time. It was an emotional time. I was really lucky to have a huge amount of support from uh, my family, um, from some close friends, uh, from the the doctor that was my HIV specialist who literally held my hand every step of the way through the process. Uh, and when it came to going to court, he actually was able to get Australia's leading scientists and professors and doctors that specialised in HIV epidemiology and virology, he actually could pull the very best Australia had uh, and get them all to come to to court. Uh, And and a QC volunteered to run the case as well, pro bono. So I I had the support of those that were educated and were in the know uh, of what the latest situation was and what was safe and what wasn't. Wow, amazing! Yeah, I'm actually interested to to hear that that HIV can be uninfectious, and I'm pretty sure that a lot of the community wouldn't actually know that. And so, I'm just wondering what your thoughts would be on updated education in that area. That is such an interesting topic because. Uh, this is what I was told in 1997 that when I became undetectable. Um, that I was uninfectious. And 20 years later, most of the population, including the gay community, aren't even aware that that's factually true, that there hasn't been, there's been a lot of studies done, um, studies with uh, positive, undetectable people uh, who have engaged in unprotected sex or unsafe activities. Uh, and, and it's been measured uh, and backed by scientific evidence, there hasn't been one single reported case uh, of transmission where the person is undetectable. So it, it's a huge it's a huge um, statement. Um, and, and, look, I, I don't know why there hasn't been a little bit more pick-up in the media. Possibly uh, there are concerns that if you start promoting what is seen as unsafe behaviour, there's a, a risk of, um, uh, you know, STDs uh, increase and, and other bloodborne viruses uh, could easily be spread and, and that's obviously uh, dangerous and unhealthy and, and puts people in a high place of risk. And it, there's also a burden on, on budgets for governments if that was to occur. Yeah, the social issues would be enormous as to how you would best manage that. But I think that the key is safe sex in all its forms is a good idea, whether you can uh, catch AIDS or uh, HIV, sorry, or not. Um, so, yeah, no, but that's absolutely fascinating. And I think that's a really good thing too, that we should get out there in the community because it's not such a, 
I think there would be a vilification in association with HIV positive status on its own because a lot of people would never have met somebody who was HIV positive or who had told them they were HIV positive. So some of that fear that born from a lack of education could be alleviated by getting some of this information. Yeah, absolutely. And I fully support that. Uh, I encourage and fully support uh, safe, se safe sex practices and, and safe injecting drug use. Um, they're, they're the only way we know to, to keep people safe from, from all sorts of infections. Absolutely. So talking about you and going back into the 90s and the early 2000s, you were the first footballer to come out as gay in 2002. And obviously you had your HIV positive status as well. So what were the challenges at that time that you had to face 15 years ago coming out as gay in a probably quite homophobic environment at that time being the AFL game as such? And how do you think that that's changed now? Do you, think, do you see any differences between what you experienced 15 years ago to what it would happen to somebody now if they were brave enough to come out as gay? I most certainly believe that uh, there's been a, a large shift in the opinions of 15 years ago. I remember coming out, um, and it was in a in a magazine that was sold internationally, um, so sold in Australia and many countries overseas in America and Europe. And that was 2002, and it was just it was the toughest thing I think I've ever had to do in my life. It, you know, I'd been faced with death, and luckily. Uh, was, was you know, medication became about that wasn't uh, an outcome, and then, and then I was speaking with Ian Roberts, who's a, a gay rugby league player, who was the first rugby league player to ever come out. Uh, I think in the mid nineties, and I was speaking with him uh, not long before I did the interview, and he was the one that suggested to me. He was the one who who gave me the confidence and said that it's so important that. Um, you know, the LGBTIQ community had positive role models. And the fact are there are people that are rugby league players or Aussie rules footballers or whatever other profession that are gay. And it's important uh, to the community to have positive role models. Uh, and it's important and, and it's always tough being the first because it, it's unknown, but it takes courage and bravery. And I had the support. Of, of Ian Roberts and then obviously the magazine that wanted to report about a, a gay Australian rules footballer. So at the time it was tough and some of my teammates, uh, you know, they, they were uncomfortable with that. And it wasn't until I sat down with them and often with their wives or girlfriends and would explain, look, mate, for 10 or 15 years we've been in the same footy team. Yes, we've, we've played footy, we've showered, we've got drunk, whatever. When in that entire time did I ever make you feel uncomfortable in any way, in any shape or form? When in that time did you ever feel that I looked at you in an or behaved in an inappropriate manner? And every player without doubt came back and said that there wasn't a once ever in my whole history of my football career where someone felt uncomfortable. Um, so once we got over that barrier, the only thing that had changed is I said the words, I am gay. And that's the only thing that had changed. They were still my mates uh, and you still looked at them like a family member. You know, you, you looked at your teammates uh, like, you know, like they're, they're part of your family and, you know, you go into the trenches to support them. Now, now for someone to, to come out, I think they'd have huge support if they publicly came out, whether it's an AFL player. And we've seen it in the women's game. Uh, the women, AFL women's, are absolutely driving um, you know, the anti-homophobia in sport and, and calling out transphobia 
what for what it is. So I think these days, if an AFL player was to come out as gay, he would be very, very well supported and respected. Um, you know, social media has been tremendous for, for, you know, human rights and activism because it gets such a positive message to so many people. So I'd be very confident that if an AFL player was to come out today, I think they'd be, they'd be well respected and supported. Now, Matt, in that conversation that was really interesting there, but I think that was the longest acronym in the world's history of LGBTIQ. So can you just explain? Lesbian, yeah. Yeah, lesbian and gay, uh, bisexual, intersex, transgender, queer. Did I get them right? LGBTIQ. Okay. Lesbian, so- gay, bisexual, <laughs> transgender, intersex and queer. Okay, right. That is that is the longest acronym I think I've ever heard, uh, and that's I, uh, that's. Let's just say gays and lesbians. That, that might be easier. No, no, just yeah, for the, just don't for want the, to offend anyone. No, just for our listeners, so they're wondering what that what that actually stood for. Now we talk about some a really exciting uh, event coming up regards the Pride Game that uh, is going to be released pretty soon, a few weeks time for the AFL. Can you give us some some details about this? Certainly. The AFL have come such a long way. Um, A study was done a few years ago and it rated the AFL as being perceived as the most homophobic sporting organisation in Australia. And that's really not a title I think any sporting association would be that proud of. So they've deliberately uh, done some research and What's happened is a country footballer, Jason Ball, came out in 2012 and he got tremendous. Jason Ball was a turning point for Australian rules football, um, just quietly. He has had tremendous results and success in getting um, you know, uh, anti-homophobia in sport uh, front and centre in the national agenda. And Jason and the St Kilda Football Club, led by Matt Finnis, uh, organised the first AFL Pride game last year, which is between St Kilda and the Sydney Swans, uh, and it was a resounding su- success. It was massive. The, the public just got behind it. And, and what it does for, for younger people to know that um, if they're struggling with their sexuality, that, that their support, you know, at an organisation like the AFL, it gets the conversation started and it gets... A, you know, really positive messages out there to the community. So this year it will be the uh, game again is Swans versus Saints at the SCG on the 22nd of July. And, again, I would encourage as many people as possible to get to it uh, or to watch it. It's a tremendous spectacle. But what it's doing for, for human rights is not dissimilar to what uh, the AFL did with racism in the past. They were proactive on racism, and now we've got to the point where racism is stamped out to the point where if you go to an Australian, uh, an Aussie rules game, and someone from your crowd, your team, who barracks for your team, is racist to an opposition player or one of your own players, a member in the crowd from that own team will dob that person in, and that person will be banned from the sport for a significant time. And I think that's a generational change, and I think it's massive. And, again, the AFL should be applauded for what they did with racism, and I think now they're getting on board uh, a lot more with anti-homophobia in sport. Kim, don't you think there there is a big reflection of change, isn't there? So you remember we talked about earlier at the start of the podcast how probably through the 80s when we went through things, we were very ignorant 
didn't understand and a lot of society would say things inappropriately, whereas what Matt's saying right here is a, a, an important organisation in sport. The AFL have led the way with racism. They're certainly, I think, leading the way with depression as well now, starting to work through that. There's a couple of players now that have mentioned that they've suffered depression and I think have had some good support around them, which is positive. And now, in the sense with this particular game, the Pride game, is another example of the AFL trying to lead the way in this sort of uh, social cultural education. What do you think? Oh, definitely. I think that these large organisations like the AFL, particularly organisations that have fans and uh, and their players are adored, I think they play a very significant role in educating the community and, and helping the community develop attitudes. We are we do all follow our leaders and in some ways those people are the leaders. And I'd actually be interested to know, Matt, how the AFL handles these things internally because they're obviously trying to be leaders externally and help their fans follow in the right footsteps and they're doing things like Pride Game. But what do they do inside? So with racism as well as with homophobia, Are there seminars offered to players? Is there uh, some kind of uh, activity that goes on behind the scenes that we don't see so the players can all come out united in a way? Absolutely. I know that in 2012 a player uh, homophobically vilified another player and at that point the AFL didn't have a policy on how to deal with the the homophobic vilification. I'm wrapped to tell you that i was at a seminar um, the following year after that where they uh, included homophobic vilification under the same code as racial vilification. So so, so that's an internal um, step the AFL took a, a couple of years back. And then I also had the pleasure of being uh, a guest when the AFL were doing a seminar um, titled Training the Trainers. And, and what it was was the, the heads of, uh, you know, the welfare departments and the state leagues uh, were brought into the AFL and Jason Ball does a presentation and Jason's made a movie that, uh, you know, a, a, a documentary or a, a video where uh, it gets played to every new player uh, and it gets played to anyone who works within an AFL club, I believe, have to... There, there's certain... Um, uh, videos that they all actually have to watch at some stage in their induction, and that's one of them. So, um, yeah, you've got the AFL now including uh, anti-homophobic policy within their within their what used to be the racial vilification, and and you've also got education through uh, you know when a new player comes on board, or welfare officers and heads of state league, etc. Uh, they have to you know understand what the the latest um, policies are in relation to drugs and alcohol uh, into um, you know, being a role model and all, and, and how to treat women. They they have uh, a seminar on you know the appropriate behaviour of, of young men and, and adults uh, and what's what's uh, appropriate for society. And I know that the AFL included in that do uh, education about uh, anti homophobia in sport. So they're taking the lead here, and I think they're kicking goals just slightly. Well, they need to be commended for it. Fantastic. Now, in the context of time, we we. we you described earlier that we have through the AFL women some gay or lesbian ladies who play AFLW, correct? Yes, right, and and have been and that's been shared and declared. Uh, what do you think? 
the impetus would be if an AFL player at the highest level came out and said they were gay? Do you think that would make a big shift in the in the movement of this conversation? I believe so. If we have a look at the AFL women's and that kiss, which, you know, obviously gets referred to all the time. I live in Queensland and I heard about that kiss uh, and it was the uh, the young lady that had just won what was equivalent to the women's Brownlow kissing her wife. And uh, it, it was a beautiful moment and I believe it was very, very well received by the majority of people. I've yet to hear any complaints actually about that. But it just shows you that, you know, two Adults uh, showing a bit of uh, affection between one another, um, no issues with it. So for an AFL men's player to publicly come out if there was to be one that was gay, look, if you look at the statistics, statistically there's a fair chance that uh, someone that's played AFL at some stage would identify as, as gay or bisexual um, but they haven't come out yet, and, and in the past maybe they felt they didn't have the support, maybe they were concerned about what their teammates would think, maybe they were concerned even, you know, about how it may impact their career. Um, you know, there was all sorts of possibilities, but in today's modern age of uh, technology and communication and with everything you say available on the internet immediately, I would say that there'd be huge benefits to the gay and lesbian community if a um, Australian rules footballer was to, to publicly come out as, as gay or bisexual, I think they would be, um, you know, commended, supported, acknowledged, uh, and it would have huge, huge ramifications, uh, as in um, it would be great for the community at large as it's just another role model so that younger people can look up to them and know that they're, they're not different. When you come into grips with your sexuality, it's it's an incredibly hard thing to, to cope with or to accept that, you know, you, you feel different, you think you're different, you think there's something wrong with you. Um, most of us deny it even for as long as possible. But at the end of the day, you can't change who you, who you are, who you're born. And I just think to, to have another positive role model um, from Australian rules football is just a great thing for the... Uh, not just for the gay community, but for the whole community. It just breeds acceptance and tolerance and education and awareness. Matt, did Ian Roberts come out when he was playing or after? I, I can't recall, with rugby. Um, I believe it was right at the end of his career. Um, I think he may have played after he'd, he'd come out, but it was it was pretty close to the end of his career. And look, I believe he was homophobically vilified uh, after he'd come out, but mate, that bloke would throw a punch like no one else, and he, I believe he looked after himself fairly well. <laughs> there you go, very good. Matt, do you think that there is a difference between uh, how lesbians are perceived compared to gay men? So we're talking about a lot of women, and this is a controversial topic, but we're talking about a lot of women in uh, football and in society who are quite free to do what they like, kiss who they like, hold hands with who they like, and we, nobody seems to mind. Um, but then for some reason, men are, are confronted by doing the same thing in public. So uh, for an AFL football at the highest level, he'd have to think twice about coming out. And obviously they are thinking twice about it because there would be many over the number of football players that we have in the AFL, there would be many, many, many men who are gay and none of them are out at the moment. But yet in the women's league, it's all and sundry. Nobody's, nobody's really fussed. Is there a difference? As much as I hate to admit it, I, I personally, and this is my opinion, I think that there must be. 
because you are 100% right. I actually gone and watched women's football before it was the AFL Women's Comp. I was in Melbourne and I I had a a friend that played uh, in the Women's League and I used to go and watch quite a few women's matches. And I, I bet many of the girls that are now playing in the AFL women's competition. I, I, I went on a Mad Monday with a with a women's football team, which you know what what happens at a Mad Monday stays at a Mad Monday. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> come on, Matt! Oh, come on, Matt. We, on that, Matt! we like scoops on back chat. Come on, you can share with us. Yeah, it's just between you and me and no one else. That's but right. They all but they behaved exemplary. Oh, right. very good. <laughs> Good one, Matt Hall. I like that. Yeah, yeah I, I, I have. I, if I want to get back invited on another Mad Monday, mate, I can't be telling anyone. No, exactly, mate. No, we can't. We can't anyway, break the Vegas rule. It was fantastic. But, the, but to answer your question, Kim, absolutely, I personally think that there is maybe a perception still where that there, there are you know many women who uh, identify as lesbian who are playing in the AFL women's competition. So there's a certain amount of acceptance. There's a certain amount of well. You know, so what? This is who's playing and get on with it. We're in the men's comp because it hasn't happened. There's still that that last hurdle, that last barrier to break through of, of who's going to be the first and what's it going to be like for them. And, uh, and, and I, I, you know, sexuality too is one of those things. You can't push someone to come out for someone else's benefit. It's something that has to come from inherent or internal. It's got to be the individual's decision because if you if you push someone or, or if you if you out someone, it's a really high risk of the, the negative, um, what could possibly uh, affect their, their mental health or their physical well-being um, if someone is forced out. So I, I guess it, it will happen and it's just, it, it's a matter of where, you know, it's, it, it will happen uh, and I know that they'll have the support and the assistance, but perhaps, yeah, the, the it won't change the community's attitude until it does happen. I think with the women's, uh, because so many uh, put their hands up and identify uh, as lesbian. That uh, it's just there's a certain amount of acceptance, and it's you know it, it's not like it's the first. Um, whereas with the uh, on the men's side, uh, I think too because AFL is such a masculine sport, and, and the 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 negative connotations of being gay was always perceived as being effeminate. Um, and I know that was something that I struggled with. Like I was a pretty tough sort of fella when I was younger, and uh, uh, played football uh, not as a, as a as a dirty play, but certainly as someone that needed to um, show that I was uh, you know a physical player who, who tackled hard, ran hard, um, tried to do the right things by the team. And I know that I was concerned about if I'd be perceived as as less manly or mes- less masculine by being gay once I'd come out. And I was I was fortunate that after I'd come out, like large majority of the team were hugely accepting and, and, and no one guessed it. Well, that's what they say now. Uh, but no one said that in any way, shape or, or, you know, that they assumed that I was or thought that I was uh, and that I played the game with, with quite a lot of uh, energy uh, and aggression. But uh, um, they didn't think less of me after I'd come out or thought that I was uh, more fair. Look, having said that, there was a couple of players that weren't cool with it and uh, I yeah, may have had a a few, a few arguments and verbal stouches with some people afterwards. But at the end of the day, you can't change other people's opinions. All you can do is give them the facts um, and hope through education and awareness that we become more compassionate and understanding. 
Well, I think the education is the key there because you're talking about stereotypes and so, you know, the fact that gay men need to be effeminate is such a huge stereotype and that comes again from ignorance and a lack of education. So I think those things are really important for people to see that it, it, there can be all types of different types of people. Excellent. Now, Kim, oh, absolutely. Now, Kim, can I just test your memory? 1987. Oh, gosh. Yes, how go many, on. How many years ago was that? That was... Uh, it was 30 years ago. 30 years ago. Now, do you remember the Grim Reaper advertising campaign? I do. I do. It sent my parents into a spin back in 1987. Okay. So for those who perhaps who may not be aware of it, if, if one's a bit younger than uh, all three of us, but in, in 1987 this was designed to raise public awareness about AIDS and the concept of safe sex with contraception. The advertisement depicted the Grim Reaper bowling, a, a bowl, bowling in a bowling alley and knocking over men, women, and child pins, which represented AIDS victims. So, Matt, I want to come back a little bit to that because, you know, it was lauded as a campaign very successful in its education about AIDS. But from your readings and understandings, did it put a lot of pressure on society's views or raise sort of homophobia? What's your feel on that, on that uh, issue? This is a topic that I get asked about quite a lot. I'm on the board of management for Queensland Positive People, and uh, uh, which looks after positive people in, in Queensland. And when I go to national seminars, uh, this this seems to be a topic that's still discussed. And and what happens is people that are you know under the age of I don't know, say thirty or whatever. Some of them haven't seen it and asked to watch it, so of course you just Google it, and, and they're absolutely mortified to think that that was a, yeah. uh, you know, a health campaign back in the day. So we've got to look at it in context. In 1987, that what probably was most appropriate because governments were in absolute, um, uh, like they, they just didn't understand. I don't think what was on their doorstep. You know, it, it broke. Uh, first, I think in 1983 in America uh, was the first reported AIDS case, and it was I think referred to as gay man's cancer. So um, it was it was um, at a time in Australia where uh, people didn't know anything about how it was passed on, why people were getting it. Um, it was just absolute terror, and, and I think that that Grim Reaper ad did the job that it had to do in 1987. There, there needs to be some shock and awe campaign that got absolutely everyone um, thinking about, um, you know, safe sex with condoms and, and, and injecting drug users about, uh, you know, safe injecting practices. And and, and the, it scared the living daylights out of me, and I know that it scared the living daylights out of pretty much. I was a uh, I was a fifteen year old boy at that point in my life. And yeah. it was, it was incredibly scary, but as I said, in context, it was probably required at the time. Now, look, when we look back, unfortunately now it possibly was too successful in that now people still think of HIV and they think of the Grim Reaper. If they're, if they're above a certain age, they still think, you know, if you get HIV, you're, you're dirty, you're dangerous, and you're going to die and you're contagious. So uh, from a, a modern perspective, I think we need to do a, a little bit more on getting people up to date with the facts using evidence-based research just to make sure that when people are talking about HIV, like today in Australia, 
Um, no one pretty much dies from AIDS anymore in Australia. Um, it's not even recorded in ABS statistics because it's, it's so low to be pretty much non-existent. So, but you still have people that are fearful of HIV and are still, uh, you know, have their way of thinking still revolves around that, uh, uh, 80s time where they, they think that, you know, you know, uh, people with HIV are going to get AIDS and die and, you know, they're just, they're, they're, um, not valued and that they, um, you know, deserve what they got as it was a common sort of trend at times. And nothing could be further than the, than the truth. You know, these days, uh, I take one tablet a day. I have a normal life expectancy and I'm untransmittable to a, another person. So I would love to see a, a new modern, um, advertising campaign, but you know, again, the concerns are about getting the factual message out. And I think the Grim Reaper kept uh, control of the masses for so long through fear. Mm. Uh, and, and that's just these days I would like to see a little bit more honest education and maybe a little bit more transparent education based on fact and not based on fear. Well, you're doing a little bit of that yourself, actually, with the, uh, you know, speaking of getting up to date with facts, You've just completed the Kokoda track, it's Stronger Than You Think, um, which you just came back from, and you did that with a few other HIV-positive people and their supporters. Tell us a little bit about what motivated you to do that and what it was all about and, and how that is bringing uh, HIV status into the 21st century. My motivation was to uh, challenge stigma and discrimination based on someone's HIV status. So I have to say that it was so bloody tough. Like, I thought I'd trained. I agreed to do this in March. I was involved with making a professional short film called Talking About Stigma earlier this year. And um, the film company that made that movie, um, which was shown at the Brisbane Queer Film Festival, uh, they, they, they were... Um, asked to come on the Kokoda Plus trek, which was being led by uh, gay HIV-positive Olympian Jai Wallace. Uh, Jai had had this plan for a couple of years, and uh, the Light and Shaders Media Company, who did an amazing job, they uh, let me know. And I was talked into doing this Kokoda trek about 10 weeks before it left. Now, I'm a bit older, shorter, fatter, balder than I used to be when I was younger, and training for... Uh, hiking. I love to camp and I go to the gym and do some weights. But Kokoda, you walk for up to 13 hours. We, we did the walk in six days. We were in Papua New Guinea for 10 days to have some chats with some dignitaries and the United Nations AIDS organisations in Papua New Guinea. But we actually did the, the 96 kilometre walk over six days. So the shortest day I think was 11 hours and the longest day was 13 hours. So you're up at 5.30, porridge for breakfast, noodles for lunch, vegetable curry for dinner, and you walk up and down the largest hills. I don't exaggerate here. They went on for miles, these hills. Right, <laughs> and you got, your, you got your backpack on and, you know, you've got 10 or 15 kilo all up in your backpack. And, and it's the weather's either, uh, you know, the sun's out and it's hot and humid, but you're just sweating and you're walking through grass, you're walking through rivers and creeks, or else it's 
absolutely tropical rainfall where it's bucketing down and it's just mud and you just keep falling over and all you can do is laugh I hope that you're not too injured. I ended up, you know, I was having knee strappings, ankle strappings. Um, the, the trek leader from the company that took it is an army medic and they were feeding me, um, you know, anti-cramp tablets and <laughs> it, it was tough physically. Um, but look, think of what it must have been like for those brave soldiers that were doing it yeah, with, sure. you know, they were doing it getting shot at. Uh, they didn't have the equipment we had. We didn't. They didn't have the boots. They didn't have the porters. Like they, they had the, the assistance of the locals, but they pretty much the locals carried Australian soldiers who were injured on stretchers um, out of out of conflict. Uh, and the fuzzy wuzzies were just phenomenal. How how much they supported Australia uh, in that conflict. But the, the brave soldiers that fought in those conditions uh, that had to walk up exactly those same things like I thought the Kokoda trek I thought it was going to be like a farm track maybe wide sort of thing you know up and down a few hills and I just did a bit of research obviously not enough <laughs> and um and then when I got there there's parts where there's absolutely no track it is just tree roots like you know these beautiful old um rainforest trees that have roots miles long again exaggeration uh they have these huge roots and it's just all like there's no track, but the, the local porters just show you the way and you just trust them and you follow them and, and, and they laugh at the Australians quite a bit because they think we're mad that we uh, we pay money to come over and walk this treacherous walk. But it, it's about uh, learning about the history of the, the country and, and just showing a little bit of honour and respect for those who went before us. So the um, the trek route was interesting. There was a device group. That, well, not everyone was HIV positive. It wasn't like you had to disclose your status. It was just a, a group of people uh, that were invited. Um, so there were some positive people and some not positive. And, you know, male and female, straight and gay, lesbian and mixture. And we 18 started and 18 finished. So we're super excited and the documentary is called Stronger Than You Think and hopefully that'll be out later this year. And Jai Wallace, the Olympian, did an amazing job pulling it together uh, and then get, keeping everyone motivated every day. Because let's just, I, I can tell you now, when you're in the jungle and you're not getting a lot of sleep and you're not eating well and you're walking for such long hours, a couple of people get a little bit grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> no one just in the relationships. Yeah. Uh, and I snore, so I, I actually felt sorry for some of the other trekkers who had to listen to me snore. And, yeah, there was a bit of a joke where they'd, they'd come in, and you have walking poles to help you, obviously, up and down the hills to balance, and they'd poke me through the tent with a walking um, a walking pole, apparently, and, uh, in the hope I'd turn over. But overall, well, it, I highly recommend it to people. Fantastic. Now, a couple of questions with this. Now, Matt, now, Matt in your own words, you said before Kokoda you were short, bald, <laughs> and fat. Now, they were your words, right? Yeah. Post-Kokoda, you're still short probably. You've probably still got the same sort of hairline, but are you a little bit less tubby or have you lost a bit of weight or how'd it go? I lost a heap of weight. I think I lost about eight kilos um, all, right. all up while I was over there. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. There you go. And you so just to flesh out a little bit more, you, you said there's a documentary that's going to come out later in the year, which is, is that in education about AIDS or is it more mental health? What's what's the what's the go there? 
the documentary will be called Stronger Than You Think, and it's uh, it was Jai Wallace's idea, and the trek was he, he led the trek. And I believe the documentary will just focus on HIV stigma and discrimination. Okay. Um, so it'll tell the story of various participants um, in the lead up to the trek. I know that uh, I had a, a camera. Uh, they, they were silly enough to give me a camera for a week and I had to film uh, all sorts of training and interviews and uh, took it into Beyond Blue and Lifeline and uh, caught up with a mate from high school who was in the armed forces and we had a good chat. And then they, they, so they're going to um, put together uh, all the footage that they got from, from four or five main people who did the walk and, uh, yeah, make it into a documentary that'll you know, hopefully have a positive message. But at the end of the day, it's just to challenge people's perception. of uh, Kokoda is seen as a very masculine, Aussie, macho thing to do. And the fact that there was numerous uh, people there who were positive. I was, uh, I've been positive for over 22 years. So I was the, the longest person living with HIV on the trek. Um, but the fact that we, we got through it and just to, to see our attitudes and to prove that, you know, we're stronger than you think and that we don't need to, to be treated any differently. It's just, again, that challenging stigma and discrimination. Terrific. Now, you mentioned Beyond Blue, so I understand you're you're now a, be, a, be, a Beyond Blue ambassador and part of this Public Speakers Bureau. Why did you become, with, become involved with Beyond Blue, Matt? I have uh, used Beyond Blue's resources over the years. Uh, I have lived experience with depression, uh, anxiety, uh, and attempted suicide. So I uh, was sounded out a couple of years ago uh, as someone who's now come through the other side um, of bad mental health to someone who now lives a very happy and healthy life. Um, I'm very, very, uh, you know, energetic and, and just love my life. And I live on the Gold Coast and uh, company director and, and I've got so much joy and happiness in my life that, uh, you know, when I look back 15 years ago, uh, how I felt, uh, I just couldn't believe that I could ever feel and, and be this, uh, you know, that life was so enjoyable. I, I had some pretty dark moments in my life. And Beyond Blue's key aims are raising awareness about depression and anxiety and reducing stigma and encouraging people to seek help early. And every day in Australia, eight people suicide. And of those eight, six are male. And to put things in perspective, our road toll is 3.5 people a day. So those figures are just too high. It's just in a, in, a, in a modern Australia, in the country we live in, we've got to do a little bit more as people to, to reduce that figure significantly. So mental health doesn't discriminate. It can affect people of every age at any stage of your life. We need to start talking about mental health and just check in with people that we're concerned about. I feel depression's more than just a low mood. It, it's an illness uh, and it can impact your physical and mental health. And often, like for me, I know I lost interest in work. I lost interest in hobbies. I lost interest and happiness in all the activities that I'd previously normally enjoyed. Uh, I lacked energy. I had difficulty sleeping or else I was just sleeping incredibly long hours, you know. So for me, I just wanted to give back to an organisation that gives so much to so many in this country. Uh, like Beyond Blue is the largest mental health awareness organisation in Australia. It uh, is funded by state and federal government. It has an amazing amount of resources. Uh, I 
since learned through doing their public speaking program the importance of putting a human face to a condition. I have spoke at many functions and a wide variety of functions, um, you know, from financial consultants where I was the only non-millionaire in the room um, to sports clubs to, um, you know, women organising a charity auction. And I think it's important too for, for men to be involved because, as I said, out of eight people that take their life, six are male uh, every day, that's a that's a pretty high statistic and there's not a lot of males that are active in, in the community and I just found it was really important to have a, you know, a, a male involved and when I do my public speaking, the amount of young men, I, I speak at rugby and AFL clubs and the amount of young men that will speak to me after I've, I've spoken and just tell me about one of their friends uh, who, who you know, may have taken their life or, or even some of their own emotions and their own feelings. And for some people, it's the first time they've ever told anyone that they're, you know, feeling, um, you know, a bit sad or something's not quite right and that they've never put their hand up. So it's just trying to, to tell people that, you know, these are some of the common symptoms of depression and anxiety and just to be aware of them. Um, and know that you, you will be supported. Putting your hand up and asking for help is such a tough thing to do. We're just, I think, genetically, we women do it better than blokes because women get together and, and speak um, more regularly where men just, I think, were traditionally taught to grit your teeth and harden up and, you know, snap out of it. And, it, and it's just not that easy. You can't just snap out of it. There's no magic solution or easy solution when you're dealing with mental health. It's something that you've got to commit to change. But the first thing you've got to do is identify some symptoms and, and then make sure that you get to your GP. Once you get to your GP, I can assure you that your life will improve. Um, once you see, yeah, I was going to say, just once you see your GP, they will come up with a, a designated plan for the individual because everyone's experience is slightly different and there's a whole host of resources that are available and some resources work better for some people. But I know for me that I pretty much got to the point where I was incapable of looking after myself or making the right decisions. I was in that dark little place. And once I'd um, spoke to a doctor and was put into a mental health care plan, everything got a little bit easier. And it didn't happen overnight. It took effort. But things got better. And everyone I speak to who, who's been through bad mental health and come out the other side, they all say similar things. And that the hardest thing was doing was asking for help. But getting to your GP and getting the professional support is, is not just life-changing. It can be life-saving, and we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to the people that we care about. They're really inspirational messages, Matt, and I think really, really important ones because even if you save one life, it's been worth it. You, uh, you've got a lot of inspirational stories, actually, we've talked about through this last hour or so. We've come to the stage of, of our program where we talk about an inspirational moment. You have the opportunity to tell us about an inspirational moment. You may have already touched on it, but I'm just wondering if there's anything that stands out as your most inspirational moment in, in your life. That would be a tough one because there's been a lot of times in my life where there's been individuals or organisations that have made a difference. But certainly I would think in 2007 my life was changed and my life was saved by a, a gentleman called Dr. Darren Russell, who was a HIV specialist. Um, and if you remember back in 96 and the start of 97, it was still a death sentence and I was going to uh, Fairfield Hospital and being told I had five years to live and 
you know, see you later. And then I saw Dr. Darren Russell on television talking about antiretroviral uh, HIV treatment. So I made an appointment to see him and my 10, 15-minute consultation turned into over one hour. And I remember, like, hanging on every word this man told me. But more than that, Darren not only became my doctor, he became my friend. Um, within three months of starting meds, I was undetectable. And then when I went back to play football, uh, he told me, without doubt, I was safe. Uh, he went and spoke to the football club. He spoke to insurance companies. He spoke to uh, the AFL. He spoke to um, anyone that was interested and was concerned. Darren would go and speak to them and give them the facts based on evidence. And when I did my first media, and every media advisor or person that um, you know sat with me advised me not to do media because I had no experience. And Darren just said, "Mate, just talk. You know how to talk. Obviously, obviously, I know how to talk. I don't shut up when I get going." And uh, he just said, "Mate, talk and be yourself." And uh, and he gave me so much confidence. And he's still a friend of mine now. And you know, he was just instrumental in assisting me with the groundbreaking legal battle uh, the ban imposed on me by the Victorian Amateur Football Association. He, he was instrumental in having that overturned and that paved the way for worldwide anti-discrimination laws for HIV athletes and that's just something that you know I'm pretty, pretty proud of but couldn't have done it without that individual. Amazing man. Amazing man, absolutely. Fantastic. Now also Matt, if you could there's, there's been a lot of little nuggets, little pearls through the whole podcast today. So could you summarise and give our listeners on Backchat three take-home messages? Three take-home messages would definitely be um, stigma and the damage that stigma can do. We must – stigma can be more dangerous than physical bullying. So I would encourage you listeners that call out stigma – when you see it, it's, it's really important that you stand up and, and fight stigma. Uh, it's important that you provide strength and resilience to those that have experienced. And most importantly, that will that will lead to, to you know better awareness uh, and hope. Um, another call to action, I'd say, from me would be uh, looking at awareness and education around mental health and suicide prevention. I just think with some of the things I've said about the statistics and uh, and what's happening in Australia at the moment that we just need to make this front and centre and we need to do a bit more work. We, we see how much goes on with the road toll um, and it's great that we've, we've changed the culture of, of speeding and drink driving and seatbelts and texting on mobiles and there's all these safety messages for the road toll and now we need to do a lot more with mental health uh, and suicide prevention awareness and education. And my final my final one would be living with purpose. I think every individual should should uh, be passionate about something in their life and find what you're passionate about and make that your purpose and you'll be a very happy individual. Fantastic, Matt. Kim, what do you think? Oh, I think that third one really resonates with me. They all do, but living with purpose really is the answer to everything. If you're passionate about life and you're passionate about what you're doing, then you'll be spreading love, you'll be spreading joy and you'll be spreading happiness. And I think Matt's, you know, he's, he's had his back against the wall in a number of circumstances. He's come through the other side and now I suppose he's using his energies in his life really to help others uh, go through their challenges. And I think 
Matt, thank yeah. you so much. It's, it must be a very fulfilling experience for you right now. Oh, all the work I do now just nourishes the soul. You know, I, you, you're right. I, I've gone through hurdles, as anyone and everyone will do in their life, but it's how we bounce back that's important. And having the right support and assistance when we need it is, you know, so important. And I just love my life. And, I, and I'm very proud and happy to sit here and say that uh, I contribute positively now to society and make a difference to other people's lives. Fantastic, Matt. Thank you so much. Cheers, mate. Now, Matt's a company director of Southern Cross Australia Events. Uh, it's uh, au. As you be aware, he's also a Beyond Blue Ambassador and also serves as a Lifeline Crisis Counselor. And just to reiterate, we have the 2017 AFL Pride Game between the Sydney Swans and St Kilda, which will be on July 22nd at SCG. And, Matt, so you'll be part of that. Is that what I'm understanding? What's your role uh, there? Or um, is there a yeah, role I there? don't have an official role as yet, but in discussions with the AFL, and we'll, we'll see what eventuates. Excellent. Fantastic. Now, naturally, discussions with depression can resonate negative feelings to those who are suffering with a mental health problem. So with responsibility, we must pass on a depression health line details in both countries that have fair uh, inputs into this Backchat podcast. So in Australia, it's Beyond Blue at beyondblue.org.au and the number to call there is 1300 224636. And in the US, it's Mental Health America.net, and that's toll-free on 800-969-6642. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Backchat podcast. All relevant website links of today's podcast will be on our Backchat podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star ratings on iTunes. We leave you with one thought. Be the best at what you do and you will grow and inspire others around you. Look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.